Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It is the most important meeting between two people this year. Chinese President Xi Jinping made his first visit to the United States in six years this week, and he spent time with a man he knows quite well, U.S. President Joe Biden. The two emerged from their meetings with agreements to resume military communications, stop the flow of chemical precursors for fentanyl to the United States, and an agreement to cooperate on artificial intelligence. These were all things the White House has been pushing for. And in return, she seems to have gotten some breathing room to focus on China's economic troubles instead of bilateral tensions with the United States, for now. The meeting in San Francisco's APEC summit this week is the culmination of more recent talks between officials from the two sides, and it comes after a period of heated rhetoric and heightened tensions between them. The question is whether this new karma mode is something that will last. Well, I have a great panel this week examining that and other questions about the world's most important relationship. Evan Madeira served as China Director in the National Security Council under President Barack Obama. Cindy Yu is an assistant editor at The Spectator, as well as the host of its Chinese Whispers podcast. And James Palmer is a deputy editor here at FP and the author of our weekly China Brief. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers to our magazine. You can sign up on foreignpolicy.com to join in. Use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. And if you like this podcast, please rate us. It helps. Let's dive in. Welcome, all of you. Evan, I'm going to start with you. White House officials were keen to lower expectations in the lead up to this summit. Now that it's over, did the Biden administration get what it wanted? I think the Biden team got both what they wanted and probably even more than that, right? Their goal going into this was to stabilize the deterioration in the relationship, to convince the Chinese that we can compete and we can talk at the same time and to make some practical progress on problems. And I think that they got everything they wanted. They got an agreement to resume military-to-military dialogues at the operational level, the theater level, and at the senior level. They got a commitment by the Chinese, which Xi Jinping acted on, to cut down the exports of fentanyl precursors. They got an agreement to start a dialogue, a track 1.5 dialogue, that is both officials and experts on artificial intelligence. And they got a um, agreement from the Chinese on climate change to accelerate the adoption of clean energy technologies, wind, solar, et cetera, into the Chinese energy grid. So all in all, the Biden team gave very little and got a lot. So Cindy, let's pick up on that. Um, It seems like the U.S. got more of the things it's been calling for than China did. Did Xi Jinping get anything out of this week? I think she also got some things. Uh, For one, the Chinese side is also keen to stabilize relationships. Um, They keep talking about the Bali meeting, something that in the Western media we don't talk about very often, but it was this time last year when Xi and Biden had their first face-to-face meeting as leaders of their respective countries. And the Chinese side seems to think that the February balloon saga derailed what was going to be a stabilization of relationship anyway, because if you think back, Blinken was going to visit China exactly um, 
a few days later. So I think the Chinese side has always been trying to see what stabilization can happen with this and using a bit of a stick and carrot approach with climate change negotiations on the one hand and other carrots, and as well as cutting off military to military communication as a punishment on the other to see if they can bring the Americans to the table and they were looking forward to this November summit as we can see from state media as well, which has really been building up this friendship with America of striking a slightly different tone to has been um, in recent years. But one other thing that the Chinese specifically got, I think, it was a reassurance from Biden that he does believe in the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. And now this is something that I think the American side has, has um, fallen victim to being a bit of giving mixed messaging over the last two years, especially starting with Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And so, Chinese state media was very much reporting on Biden saying, I do believe in the status quo in the one China policy. Obviously, that's not what, quite what the Chinese side um, reported, but that Biden believes that Taiwan should not be independent. And they seem to think that this was very reassuring, as well as some small other things. Mm. And of course, Biden himself has openly questioned uh, the one China policy in previous statements, some would call it gaffes, uh, who knows really. James, it seems like the consensus here for now uh, in this group is that America got more out of this week than China did. I'm curious if you agree, but regardless of whether you do or you don't, I'm wondering how much of the way in which this week has worked out has to do with China's economic weakness at this moment. I think a lot of it does, both in terms of American perception and in terms of how the Chinese are considering their place in the world themselves. In American perception, I think that for a lot of people in DC, China has gotten less scary because the numbers are no longer going up in quite the same way. Um, and so there's a recalibration of like how how much of a threat does China pose? Are they going to be busy dealing with economic slowdown or possibly even collapse? I think that's a little bit overstated on the American side, but DC tends to be very swingy on China. It's about to take over the world one minute, it's about to collapse the next. I agree with both Cindy and Evan that, you know, this was a win for the Biden administration. I would say that I think one of the goals of the Chinese side was to try and chip away at the Xinjiang sanctions regime, which they care a lot about, uh, both mostly for ideological reasons rather than business ones. And they got a small win on that in the, uh, the end of sanctions on the Forensic Police Institute, which is one of the groups involved in the surveillance of uh, Uyghur Muslims. So I would suspect that the, although they're not playing that up particularly highly in public media, that that's something that they, they're sort of counting as a win backstage. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to sort of dive deeper into each of the uh, sub-issues we've brought up so far. And Evan, I'll, I'll come to you first. And I want to talk about fentanyl for a minute. This is a really important thing for Americans and I think, you know, the wider public just knows a lot about the impacts of fentanyl um, on regular people that they know. I imagine the concession that China made wasn't a very difficult one for them to make. But is there a way to hold them to their promises here? And why did it take so long? Well, it's taken so long because the issue has changed. When the Chinese provided an agreement in 2018, 2019, it was about the export of fentanyl. This agreement is about the export of precursors for fentanyl. There have been a lot of exports of those precursors to both Mexico and the United States that ultimately end up being made into fentanyl and end up on the U.S. streets and people die from it. So this, and, and my understanding is there's something like 50 to 60 different types of precursors, right? So actually getting control of all of them and banning the export of them is challenging. 
But the reason it took so long is precisely the point that James made, which was there was a Ministry of Public Security uh, Institute that was under sanctions, and the Chinese view was, we want you to raise sanctions on this MPS Institute in exchange for us agreeing to control the export of precursors. And my understanding is the Chinese moved very, very quickly the day of the summit to actually go ahead and do this. So their intention to act on this appears pretty serious, but of course, implementation is the name of the game. But as a, I would say, as a longtime China watcher, both in and out of government, the early signals are pretty good that the Chinese are taking this pretty seriously. My understanding is that when Senator Chuck Schumer was in China, met with Xi Jinping, he tapped this issue pretty hard with Xi. And I think the, the Chinese government understands this is really about the safety and the health of American citizens. This isn't grand geopolitics. So I would say this is uh, an important, a really important part of the summit. Mm. Cindy, you're in London, and I'm curious how this meeting is being received in Europe. You've written for us in the past about how China as an issue has really divided Europe at times. And I'm curious what's popped up this week. Well, I'm not sure I can speak authoritatively to the whole of Europe, but from where I sit in London, in the UK, I'm afraid the UK hasn't really been paying much attention to APEC at all. Uh, and it's been one of those weeks where there's a lot of inward-looking British politics news. Um, pretty big news uh, this week, actually, because the government has reshuffled uh, its cabinet, bringing back David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, as Foreign Secretary now. He was the man who ushered in a golden era between the UK and China in 2015, which is quite recently, actually, and had to resign in disgrace when Brexit uh, was voted in and he had campaigned for Remain. But he's now been brought back as Foreign Secretary, raising questions of whether or not uh, another era, another golden era will be started um, with um, China. And then there are some other Conservative Party infighting <laughs> that um, we can get into, Ravi, if you'd like, but it's a bit of slightly more psychodrama as we're going into the dying days of a long-term Conservative government. So APEC hasn't really been top of mind um, for the British commentariat this week, which I think is a mistake because it's clearly a really important bilateral uh, with a lot of solid things coming out of it. And, you know, if the stability does maintain, if Evan's right about the fentanyl uh, commitment from the Chinese being sincere, then, you know, this could be a real turning point moment and one to remember. Hmm. James, I want to come back to talking a little bit about Xi's uh, visit and business. I uh, read that she reportedly got a standing ovation three times from the US business community. What's your sense of what's going on there? So there's no group that's more gullible on China than the US business community. They've dreamt for, you know, decades, centuries, even of a market of 400 million people, 500 million people, 1.3 billion people. Um, and they really, there's a, there was a strong desire to get things back on track and to, you know, see China somewhere where you could just be making money again. The problem is I think that um, there's also a very increased like distrust of the Chinese system at this point. We've seen a number of moves this year, particularly the attacks on information, the um, arrests of people doing due diligence and so on, which have just made it much more insecure to do business. And we've seen foreign direct investment plummet over the last year. So whether these this sort of, you know, hope can win over the actual actions on the ground in China and whether the situation on the ground in China when it comes to foreigners and um, the fear of foreigners will actually shift, will really will make a big difference over the next sort of six months or so. Mm. 
Evan, I'm curious for your perspective on the uh, business and economic angles here, um, because it seems like U.S. policy and, and the business community's sort of interest in China has sort of waxed and waned over the last uh, decade or so. But what does this week mean for the broader trajectory there? Well, it's a good question, because if you look at the broad trends, Ravi, the broad trends in U.S. business community sentiment toward China are definitely toward a greater degree of ambivalence, if not frustration and acrimony, as uh, the barriers to doing business in China have grown, as the disruptions caused by excessive concentration of supply chains have grown. So if you, you really have to look sector by sector, right? There are sectors like agriculture, retail, manufacturing, financial services, who are still doing quite well in China, right? You look at tech, it's much more divided, right? Of course, Google, Twitter, Facebook, I mean, they've got no presence there whatsoever. LinkedIn just left, Airbnb left, right? Uh, of course, you have semiconductor companies like Intel and Qualcomm that do a lot of business with China. So I would say US business community is pretty divided, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of American companies that are exporting a lot, importing a lot of intermediate products. The China market, whether for manufacturing or sales or both, remains very important, right? The, there is a core reality at the heart of this era of U.S.-China strategic competition, which is the goods trade relationship stands at about $700 billion, right? Might go up or below that $700 billion line, but that is a big, big number, right? And so I think that, you know, business confidence in China has taken a huge hit, both after zero COVID, but also after some of the austerity measures that China has adopted. And so when Xi Jinping comes to town and tries to reassure companies that they can still make money in China, they can still have access, that Xi Jinping believes in the market, they really welcome that. But business people are also smart and shrewd, and they're going to make sure that actions match words. And ultimately they're, you know, I think they're probably going to remain pretty judicious about China until they see any major shift in Xi Jinping's policies. Hmm. So let's talk about domestic politics on both sides for a minute. And, you know, Evan, it strikes me that there are many hawks in Congress who are likely not very happy this week about increased uh, talks and ties between the U.S. and China. How do you think that might play out and what kind of pressure do you think Congress has um, to sort of put to bear on the White House? Well, I mean, one of the most interesting things about or trends in domestic politics of China policy is congressional activism, right? If you look at the last three Congresses, the amount of proposed legislation and past legislation towards China, right, is extraordinary. And this is a result of both Democrats and Republicans coming together on things like the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, right? On bills like, of course, the CHIPS Act uh, to support semiconductor manufacturing in the United States, various pieces of legislation and on Hong Kong. So I think that Congress is sort of really taking the reins of its oversight responsibilities and its legislative abilities to start driving China policy. Um, you know, the, the select committee clearly has a voice and a loud voice on China policy, but the reality is, is the Biden administration didn't give very much to China. If anything, it gave Xi Jinping a very high profile summit. The administration effectively traded 
high profile symbolism for practical commitments on the part of the Chinese. That's a pretty good deal. In fact, that's about as good as you ever get in the US-China relationship. And so while there are members of Congress that don't ever like talking to the Chinese, it's hard to me that you're gonna, they will be able to sustain a criticism and a consensus behind that. To me, the real issue will be the election next year and the extent to which China becomes a central feature. Perhaps for the first time in an American presidential election, the China issue will become one of the central issues in the election. Wow. Cindy, um, let's look at the flip side of this. So what about domestic policy in China and domestic pressures there? How are, for example, wolf warriors viewing images of Xi being cheered on by the U.S. business community? How do you think all of that plays out at home there? Well, for obvious reasons, the domestic pressures in China have um, fewer levers, let's put it that way, fewer outlets uh, to pressurize the government into doing certain things uh, because of the kind of political structure China has. Um, but when you look at, for example, the media discourse, state media, of course, is all trumping up this visit, putting Xi Jinping center, front and center of this bilateral uh, portraying him as a uh, really important statesman uh, and Biden as ever so slightly <laughs> elderly and doddery, but also very complimentary of the Chinese. But what's even more interesting than that is some of those wolf warriors uh, on social media, for example, one leading one is Smanan, who has in previous years been really anti-American. He's known as the anti-American voice uh, in Chinese social media. And yet this week he's come out and said, oh, I'm a friend of America. So there seems to be this kind of society-wide top-down um, changing of narrative to say we are friendly with America as long as they play by the rules and they see that Taiwan uh, is a part of China or that they um, will, will be complimentary towards Xi Jinping, they'll give us face, all this sort of stuff. So I think it's interesting how quickly the wolf warriorism can be turned around, actually. Now, do the public buy that? I think we don't have enough to know just yet, um, but that has been something that's been quite interesting to see. And then the other domestic pressures, of course, the economy. I agree with James. The economy is not doing as badly um, as the Americans and, and as Western media is portraying it. In fact, Q3 numbers have been better than Q2, and China is still on point uh, on track to meet its 5.5% GDP growth uh, target this year. So it's not as big a deal, but it is also obviously weighing on to see that this post-COVID bounce just hasn't been super strong. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts.
James, I wonder if you can weigh in on that, the domestic pressures on either end, and also just, you know, uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy and the seeming sort of souring on it. This isn't entirely new. I mean, Chin Gang, who was one of the more famous examples of bombastic rhetoric, um, he's also been sidelined after a rapid rise up to, to be foreign minister. Yes, but that didn't have anything to do with him being a wolf warrior. That was um, because he had a baby, we think, because he had a baby in the US and it got caught up in all kinds. In, in fact, in it's a sort of hypocrisy of of leaving himself vulnerable to American pressure may have been one of the things that brought him down. And we should note with a lot of these, the online nationalists, um, rather than the, the diplomatic wolf warriors, a lot of them have family in the United States, like send their wife and kids to the US, including, I think, Simonan himself. Um, and there used to be quite a cottage industry in the Chinese internet of exposing these guys who would be like, you know, Washington must burn and then finding the pictures of them like on holiday in Florida. So I would say three things uh, about the domestic pressures. First of all, the kind of shift we've seen towards uh, actually America is, our, is kind of our friend and we should cooperate. That happens at every big China-US meeting um, and it happens for about a week. Um, it happened around... Uh, the, the Obama meetings. It happened to less of a degree around Bali, but the state media basically gets an instruction to play nice for like three or four days. And if you look at like last week's coverage in Chinese media, it was still like America's responsible for Gaza, America's responsible for Ukraine, America's the source of all the world's evils. So this stuff can be flipped very easily because of censorship instructions through state media. And it can be flipped to a degree for the really big nationalist influences because they are crawling little creeps who are trying to get a place in the kind of system of, that they need to appeal to the government so they follow the government very closely for the most part. Um, there has been some pushback from some of them, um, not so much from the, the named bloggers themselves as from the comments, which have been like, all kind of, oh, so we like America now. America's our friend. What about this, um, this week? But it will be, I think, back to bashing America in like a week or two weeks' time. Um, one of the reasons for that, and this is my second point, is that there's a lot of stuff that's going wrong in China at the moment. And there's a big feeling in China of stuff going wrong. And when that happens, the easiest person to blame, or the easiest entity to blame is America. So there's this big structural incentive to um, go after America. There's also pressures from within the security services who want to maintain their own place and power and so need to create this image of an all-powerful, all-infiltrating um, America to bolster their own sort of strength within the system. And they, I feel that they're pushing a little bit against the econ guys and maybe the Ministry of Foreign Affairs itself. Hmm. And then finally, I think we have to remember, this sort of plays into both US and Chinese domestic politics, that the Chinese officials are surprisingly ignorant about how America works, like to a degree that I have always found striking and quite scary in conversation. Um, because, because so much stuff in China is, um, works differently from how it's claimed. You know, there's, it's all these elements of nominal democracy or nominal representation that aren't real. They tend to think that the divisions within the US system are also not real. Um, there's a big kind of conspiratorial element. Um, so either, and they sort of flip back and forth on this. Sometimes America is chaotic because it's democratic. Sometimes, in fact, the CIA runs everything behind the scenes. And one of the things they've always had trouble understanding is that the president does not control even the members of his own party. Um, and he certainly doesn't control Congress. So in the 
Taiwan crisis, um, the third Taiwan crisis back in the 1990s, for instance, they they really didn't believe that Clinton couldn't control um, visits to Taiwan. They they seem to be a little, they seem to have a slightly better understanding of the Pelosi trip, but it's still quite likely that anything that, you know, um, Congress or a senator does could be in that is on the more hawkish side could blow up in the Chinese system could be taken as evidence that America isn't keeping its promises. And that goes even down to the, to the state level. You know, if Ron DeSantis decides tomorrow that he's going to ban noodles because they're woke, you know, all this stuff kind of feeds into China, into the Chinese system's feelings about America. And they see Biden as being responsible for it, even when he's very clearly not. I mean, even Americans have a hard time grasping that the president does not, uh, does not in fact control most aspects of American government. The Chinese really have a hard time grasping it. Mm. Evan, I'm wondering if you can reflect on some of that, especially since James uh, mentioned uh, sort of going back to the Obama administration, which you served in, this notion that, you know, around summits, things tend to sort of look fine and dandy, but then they kind of change quite quickly afterwards, uh, given China's ability to control um, internal messaging and the media there. If you were to take a step back, look at the last 15 odd years, what's your sense of that remark from James? And then how do you place this week within that spectrum? So I agree with James. Um, the periods leading up to and after summits are always the peak of amity and cooperation and the propaganda apparatus, uh, you know, in the past, as recently, I suddenly become newly positive, right? People forget that in March of 2023, Xi Jinping publicly said that the United States is engaged in basically containment and isolation of China. He said so on the margins of the National People's Congress meeting, right? So for sure, the propaganda apparatus will sustain this sort of uh, American-friendly narrative for a while. Uh, James said one to two weeks. I think it'll take a little bit. They'll, they'll, they'll have a little bit longer, right? We'll have a little bit longer honeymoon. Um, but the real test will be the next challenge we face in the U.S.-China relationship, the next problem, right? And it could be soon. Uh, it could be as soon as January 13th when there's an election in Taiwan. And if the ruling party, the DPP, um, is reelected, but of course with a new president, Tsai Ing-wen is term limited, and William Lai Lai Ching-de gets elected, uh, that will lead to a new sort of set of tensions in the relationship because the Chinese view is that's America's problem. America needs to contain him and constrain him. And if they don't, we, the Chinese, are going to take care of it in our own way. So this period, this honeymoon will last as long as the next problem in the U.S.-China relationship, which could be a week or two weeks. I mean, one of the issues that really concerns me is the increasing frequency of risky and coercive, dangerous intercepts of the Chinese of U.S. aircraft operating in international airspace, but around China's coastline. And then, of course, we have issues like Chinese harassment of Filipino vessels resupplying some of their ships in disputed waters in the South China Sea. So an accident or miscalculation could happen any day, right? And we live with that persistent threat of some disruption to the U.S.-China relationship. So look, what the summit did was the, you know, the wood, I guess they're calling it the Woodside Summit, uh, with reference to where the estate was that they held the meeting. And basically, it stopped the deterioration in the relationship. It pointed the relationship in 
a new direction insofar as there's now dialogue and cooperation that we can all point to, right? Eight new dialogue channels across the government, and then you've got these uh, through this new mill mill channel at three different levels. That that's all a good thing, right? So we've now opened up the dialogue and cooperation component of strategic competition. Uh, but what nobody knows is how uh, consistent or mutually exclusive these dimensions are, right? And, you know, whenever the U.S. adopts the next piece of export control legislation, the Chinese are not going to be happy and they're going to react. So, look, you know, both sides did what they did because they both wanted stability. They wanted stability for different reasons, but they wanted stability. And I think, as James very articulately pointed out, one of the reasons they wanted, the Chinese wanted stability, is because they face an accumulating number of economic headwinds and a component of that is a real drop in business confidence and specifically both direct investment and portfolio flows, right? So let's see, you know, if there is no unplanned disruption and let's see what happens with the Taiwan election. It'll be interesting to see how long this period of America-friendly propaganda lasts in China. Let's see how long these dialogue channels continue on before the Chinese cut them off out of, you know, displeasure due to some American action. And let's let's see, can we actually develop some momentum where both sides are invested in doing more with each other to solve bilateral, regional, or global issues? It's going to be very, very hard to tell. The, the reality is, I mean, the way I often talk about this, Ravi, is this is a period of cyclical warming, uh, but the structural deterioration and the structural pressures on the relationship persist. And the big policy challenge is, if I were in the White House, what you try and do is you try and turn cyclical or short-term incentives and behaviors into ones that are structural. That's the policy challenge. I don't know if it can happen because the, uh, you know, the pressures toward long-term structural competition are so substantial and so great, uh, but we will see. And it would be fun to do another one of these with this panel in six months to sort of check in and sort of say, hey, how did we do? Mm. Well, our producers are listening, so we can certainly uh, plan for that. But Cindy, you know, underpinning um, a lot of what uh, James and Evan have been talking about here is this idea of being able to compete uh, with each other, but also to compartmentalize certain areas such as climate change, such as the chip restrictions. So what's your sense of, you know, from this week, whether there's been any movement on how the Chinese, for example, see, uh, you know, the tension between those two things to cooperate in some areas, but to compete in the bigger picture? I mean, look, this is the kind of relationship that the US and the People's Republic of China have uh, are trying out afresh. Um, the US is now dubbing China a comp competitor, uh, but trying to do it in a stable and um, a stable way that is not going to escalate into military confrontation. The Chinese side totally rejects this idea or says that it rejects the idea that it's competition at all. The Chinese side have always said that they see competition talk as already way too aggressive. I'm not really sure what alternative they really think is going on. They, they talk about partnership, but I think, <laughs> you know, if they were honest with themselves or honest with us rather in their, in their their public statements they would also say that it's not a partnership at all um and so 
when we look at um, what the Chinese want to do, I don't really think that they want to compartmentalize. I think lumping it all together is actually quite an effective way of doing that. And I think this week we've seen the reverse side of that coin, where the carrot has really been brought together. So in advance of Xi and Biden meeting in San Francisco, the Chinese held four days of climate change talks with John Kerry in California. You know, they held nuclear talks in Washington uh, early in the month. Um, they sent Wang Yi to, to the US after a summer of receiving uh, American cabinet level representatives in Beijing. So that says to me that actually Beijing sees all of this as kind of scene setting for the bilateral that happened this week, which means that they don't compartmentalize it, which means that if, um, as, as Evelyn says, the next flashpoint comes, let's say William Lai, the DPP candidate, wins in January and uh, the US, whether it's some senator or speaker of the House or maybe even Biden himself, congratulates the DPP candidate. You know, what is the Chinese side going to do? Are they going to scupper climate change talks again? Are they going to be withdrawing fentanyl cooperation? I mean, I think we really have to take it day by day. But what I see from the Chinese is that the carrot and stick approach means that everything is grouped together, even though on the surface, they talk about a partnership where they do want to have global cooperation. You know, they talk about the San Francisco vision that's come from this week, this five point plan. They do love a multi point plan in Beijing, um, where part of that is just to overcome mutual disagreements. But actually, I think. The party is very smart in knowing which of these are pinch points, knowing that Western nations are really concerned about climate change, for example, that the US is particularly concerned about fentanyl, and just understanding how all of that comes together in order to get China what it wants. So I think we really have to see, basically, in, in the long term, um, what the next flashpoint is. And structurally, for China, for now at least, is a slowing down economy, or at least the growth is slowing down. And that's going to make China play nicely for a little bit. But what happens if growth recovers? I mean, so all of these are big ifs. And I think Evan is right. We just have to take it day by day and see what happens when the next hurdle comes. Mm. James, you know, the other thing that sort of uh, underpins kind of this the recent kind of trajectory of the, the US-China relationship is the uh, ongoing chip restrictions on China. And it seemed to me that she was, you know, admitting to an extent that they've hurt Beijing. What's your sense of, you know, what might change on that front uh, in the coming months? So I think this is one of the things where the US is very committed. And I don't see there being a, a big chance of backing up, off on that. Um, I think that the Chinese are to a degree learning to live with it. Um, and it's... If I was, I mean, if I was them, I would be looking at it as an opportunity, as several people have written, to sort of spur the domestic sector, which has been one of their long-term goals, but it's been a goal that they've consistently failed at. And um, they've actually done very poorly in their planning. Um, there was massive corruption um, around the, the big fund, which was the fund set up to kind of promote domestic chip production. So I think that they'll be just throwing money at it at their end and trying to compensate and trying to develop a domestic industry rather than trying to get the... I mean, they're always going to say that they want the US to lift these things and they do want the US to lift these restrictions. But I think that they're relatively realistic at the moment of, of that, that their prospects aren't great there and possibly trying to look towards a non-Biden administration uh, as a source of changes in the future, we'll see. Hmm. Um, one of the... On compartmentalization, I'll just say... I think one of the things we we have to remember is that there is no China. There's no there's no like single entity making these discussions. There's a whole group like in the U.S. of officials who are quasi politicians, quasi mafia, quasi bureaucrats, um, trying to deal with these issues. And 
their main concern is always how it affects their own career and their own work. And so I think you see, for instance, a difference in the approach on um, nuclear, where the people who make up the nuclear team on the Chinese side happen to come from a much more academic, theoretical, kind of the world could, you know, the world could end tomorrow if we mess up background traditionally. Um, and so they're, they're pretty good at working on like nuclear restriction. Whereas on climate, the Chinese climate negotiations are much more detached from the actual decisions around industry um, and environmental regulation that matter on the ground. And so they, they can say a lot of things, but they know even themselves that they don't really mean them or have the power to enforce them. And that a lot of this will come down to fights uh, within state-owned enterprises and other large fossil fuel producers and, and users and struggles inside the Chinese domestic context. So I think we always have to be careful of seeing a unified China when, despite the existence of the party, which does its best to bind things together, it's a very messy and a country with a lot of short-term and personalist thinking um, among, among officials who are themselves in constant political danger, especially at the moment. Mm. Um, when it comes to how they see the US too, I think the fact that for any Chinese official, you exist in this in this context of rhetorical danger. That something you said, something something you say, something you said five years ago could come back and be used against you when it goes against the leader's line or the party line, affects the way you you behave and the way you present yourself in public constantly. And because everybody projects their own systems onto others, I think they they see that's one of the reasons why at the diplomatic level they get so concerned about language, mm -hmm. because language really matters in Chinese politics, even more than in most people's politics. It's a fraught and a dangerous issue. It's why you get so much attention to the particular mm -hmm. wordings uh, used to, around Taiwan. Um, you, this, this sort of neurosis around language is really like permeates the mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. That's a good note to end on. Cindy Yu, Evan Medeiros, James Palmer, thank you to the three of you for coming on today, and I'm sure we'll have you back. And that was my China panel this week with Evan Medeiros, Cindy Yu, and FP's James Palmer. Next week, it is Thanksgiving, and I have something that is quite topical. I will speak with Rory Stewart, a former British politician who now runs the charity Give Directly. He changed how I think about giving aid. You won't want to miss this one. Remember, you can watch these conversations live. If you're a subscriber, use the code FPLIVE for a pretty substantial discount. FPLIVE, the podcast, which is free, is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. And the executive producer of FPLIVE is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. 
a tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.